Well, good morning. I love to see all these bags up here. I'm thankful to everyone who contributed to this. And, uh, and yeah, at 2.30 today, uh, meeting up here, we'll be able to, uh, to uh, help, uh, help in the project and, and fill more things out. So everyone's invited to uh, come and try to participate in that. Um, we are going to be finishing up our last series of lessons that we've been doing. We've looked at a bunch of call stories of people, and then we've kind of transitioned in the last few weeks, not necessarily to looking at call stories of different individuals throughout the Old Testament leading up to Jesus, but we've been looking at specific New Testament passages that deal with our calling and who we are called to be. We've talked about some of the... Uh, the general grand calls to all humankind uh, through the gospel to become followers of Jesus. And we've also talked some about more limited or specific calls to individuals or to people in, in ways that they can serve the church. We've talked about uh, the idea of our call being something that, uh, you know, it, you might expect if you look at like Moses to have this amazing burning bush moment. But then there are also times, however, even in the Bible, where the call isn't anything necessarily grand or huge or miraculous, but rather the call is seeing someone in need and knowing that you're a follower of Jesus and what you ought to do. And that's your call, to act upon that. Sometimes the call is your church saying, hey, we're trying to, uh, to feed people for Thanksgiving who don't otherwise have food and they're asking for help. And that's a call and you hear it and you think, well, what, what should I do in response to that? Um, we've talked about saying yes to the call of God. And we've talked about saying yes to uh, the call of, of ministry and to the call of service and to the call of obedience. And what we're going to say yes to this morning is the call to follow Jesus, even when it's very, very hard. Um, if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. I think 1 Peter is a wonderful book in the New Testament. And as culture shifts, and as the world uh, moves in various directions and, and we can't always predict the future and what that's going to look like, sometimes uh, there are glim glimmers of hope for what the church will look like in the future. And sometimes it kind of looks a little bit frightening about what the church will look like in the future. I think as we move on, 1 Peter becomes more and more and more relevant and important for us. Because here's what 1 Peter uh, really talks about. How is it? that you be the church, that you be a follower of Jesus, that you be the people of God in a world that is absolutely unfamiliar, um, skeptical, uh, and hostile towards this strange, weird group of people that they don't know much about. Because here's, here's the way, this is a fact about life. Anytime there's a group of people doing something very different, and you don't know a lot about them, and they seem kind of strange to you, you're generally going to view them with, with some suspicion, with some skepticism. Um, that tends to happen over and over and over again. And when you have Christians in the ancient world, it, they were living a radically new kind of life and doing things in a radically new kind of way in the middle of the old way of life and in the middle of an old uh, a society that had always done things a certain way. And all of a sudden you have these strange people who don't seem to be supporting uh, your government officials because they don't offer the sacrifices that everyone else, they don't gather at the, at the, uh, the large worship celebrations where the pagans are honored. And all of a sudden they're dishonoring your gods and they're dishonoring your officials and, and uh, they're, not, uh, they're not going to the temples that they once used to go to. And like all of these things are happening and people begin to view them with suspicion. Do you hate the government? 
do you hate our gods? Do you hate us? And then all of a sudden, guess what happens when, uh, when there's a year with a bad drought? And you think, okay, who's angering the gods? It must be these people over here who have stopped worshiping them. And all of a sudden, any bad thing that happens in your life, you can find a way to blame that small group of people over there. The people who aren't doing things the way you think they ought to be doing. And if there's a political unrest, well, you can blame those people over there. If there's a fire in Rome, you can blame those people over there. That actually happened. Uh, you, can, you can look at how Christians, because they were kind of a smaller group and an unfamiliar group, they became the subject of a lot of criticism, a lot of blame, a lot of rumor and innuendo. Oh, you can look at, at writings about the church that Christians had to defend themselves against in the second and third centuries, and you can see them called everything from atheists. The reason they were called atheists is because they denied all the, the gods of the Greco-Roman world. Now, they, did, they weren't complete atheists because they believed in one god, but to everyone who didn't know Yahweh, all they knew were all of their idols and all of their uh, cultural gods. These Christians didn't engage in any of that worship, so even Christians were known as atheists in the early church. Uh, Christians were referred to as cannibals because of some of the language probably uh, surrounding the Lord's Supper and uh, you know, gathering together to eat the flesh and drink the blood of Jesus. It, to an unchristian ear who doesn't hear that type of language on a weekly basis, sounds really weird. Uh, and so when people hear that, they think, what are these people about? They're the strangest humans on earth. They're called insurrectionists um, because they have a different king and they didn't always show complete loyalty to the Roman Empire. They believed that there was a king more powerful, uh, more worthy of their honor, adoration, and obedience than the emperor. And that is gonna, that's gonna cause problems. In fact, the guy who they did worship is actually crucified by the Romans. So what you're saying is this criminal that Rome killed is someone I would rather follow than the emperor of Rome himself. Rome's not going to like that. And so Christianity was often, uh, it was often maligned and, uh, and viewed with a lot of suspicion. It was a pre-Christian culture. Okay. Well, if you look at world history uh, from these early days, what you'll see is that Christianity ends up growing and ends up making a lot of changes in this world. Some things are really, really good, and there are definitely some things that are not so good. Uh, but Christianity, it ended up impacting a lot of cultures and a lot of the way people think. And a lot of times when people look at uh, the past, even in this country, they'll look at it as Christianity had more of a prominent role in our culture and perhaps in our politics. It's on our money and all of that stuff. But as we move towards a post-Christian culture, not necessarily a pre-Christian culture, but a post-Christian culture, we'll find ourselves perhaps experiencing some of the same types of things that they were experiencing here when First Peter was being written. Uh, people don't actually know a lot about, people have heard, like everyone in this country's heard of Christianity and heard of Jesus, but a lot of people don't know a lot about Christianity, and a lot of people don't know very much about Jesus. A lot of people have never, they've never read the Bible, you know, they've heard of the Bible, but they don't sit down and read the Bible. Uh, they've heard about Christianity, and there's just like a number of things that pop into their head when they think about Christianity. They think of crusades, they think of witch burning. They think of uh, Inquisition. They think of, uh, of hating uh, you know, people in the world today who are different. Uh, they think of uh, like sexual prudes. They think of judgmental. And they think of all of these different things. And they'll talk about that type of stuff. And if you take someone who doesn't know a lot of Christians, 
They don't know anything about Jesus. They don't know much about Christianity, but they've heard about this weird group of people who are hateful and who have done terrible things throughout world history. Then guess what? They're not going to be overly zealous to come join. Uh, They're not going to think a lot of good things about Jesus, and they're not going to think a lot of good things about you. And, and, And so that's in many areas and locations uh, in the world today, especially in the Western world, uh, that's kind of what Christianity is facing. There's suspicion, at least. And a lot of that is rooted in, in not knowing a lot about Christianity and not knowing a lot about Christian history, except for kind of the bad things that, that often make their way into popular uh, uh, news and television and things like that. And so when you read First Peter, he is addressing how is it that you as a Christian can make an impact in a world that doesn't trust you, that doesn't like you, that says a lot of bad things about you, and that uh, doesn't have any internal motivation to want to be like you. You know, it seems like in years past, even just calling someone a Christian, sometimes it was just meant as a compliment to mean like an honest or decent guy. You know, you could say like, yeah, he's a good Christian type guy. And that might not even have anything to do with their, their belief in like the deity of Jesus or any theology, but it just meant a trustworthy good person. That's not really the way that it's used now. Um, so uh, I want to look at 1 Peter chapter 2, and I want to see what we're called to be like in a world and in a culture like that. Because I think if you read it, you come to find out there is hope in a world and in a culture like that. There's reason for optimism, and there's tremendous opportunity to shine the light of Jesus Christ in a world like that. Um, you know, in a world where everyone more or less calls themselves a Christian, even though they might be a, a, a nominal Christian or you know, someone who's kind of a Christian in name only, it becomes harder, actually, to show what true Christianity is. It's not always necessarily helpful to the church if everyone just kind of goes through the flow of using the word Christian for themselves without actually having the, the forced upon them the need to be different and unique. Like, if you're surrounded by a bunch of people who are Christians and they're all still kind of acting like everyone else, but you all pat yourselves on the back for being Christians, that doesn't really motivate you to truly live like Jesus. Sometimes it's when the rest of the world and when the people around you are not even claiming to be like Christ, that you have the truest opportunity to stand out and shine the light uh, in, in a dark world. And so I think that's what First Peter's offering. It's offering how do you shine as a light in the midst of a dark world? Um, he does this a couple of ways, but I want to look at a few passages. Um, in First Peter chapter 2 and verse 11, and one of the difficult things with preaching is every verse that you start at, you'd love to start at the verse right before it. But every time you do that, you can start at the verse right before that. And you end up saying like, all right, start at chapter one and verse one. And uh, so first, I, I, hate, I hate that I'm starting right here, but I'm going to start right here. Uh, in First Peter chapter two and verse 11, you guys would get tired of uh, being here all day if I did what I wanted to. Uh, but it begins uh, and says, beloved, I, I beg you, I urge you as foreigners and as strangers Now, what's fascinating is he calls them foreigners and strangers. Um, We don't often think of ourselves as foreigners and strangers if we're from the area that we're living in, as most of them were. Why would they be considered foreigners and strangers? It's because they're actually citizens of a different kingdom. 
It's a different kind of kingdom. Their citizenship is in heaven. It's, it, this is a subtle allusion to the, uh, the fact that they are uh, people who have given their loyalty and obedience to King Jesus. He is now their king and ruler. And so even if they look like everyone else and talk like everyone else and have the same uh, you know, history, they are foreigners in the land in which they are living. So he says, I, I urge you as exiles or as foreigners and strangers, to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against your soul, keep your behavior. And there's a, there's a really important word right there. I have it highlighted in my Bible. My Bible translates it as behavior. Some of yours might translate it as conduct. It's the Greek word anastrophe. And it will pop up a good number of times in the section that we're about to look at. Um, the reason that's such a key word is because to Peter, that's going to be an essential part of the solution or the answer to our question. How do you live as a Christian in a world that uh, has so much skepticism? How do you end up shining the good light of Christ in a world that doesn't trust you, in a world that is suspicious about you? Make sure your behavior is excellent. Make sure that no matter who's looking at you, no matter where they're coming from, they can see your behavior and they can see integrity they can see love, they can see uh, charity and service, they can see the goodness of Christ in you. They can know you're a dependable, trustworthy person. They can know you're a person who, even though people might spread rumors out there, oh, they're cannibals and they don't believe in the gods and they uh, are insurrectionists and they're violent and they're uh, incestuous was another thing that was thrown out. Like all of these things, once they actually see your behavior, that becomes the greatest argument in your favor that you're not like that. Your behavior can speak a whole lot louder than your words can. That's actually true. Uh, I, I, I was, uh, saw something the other day and I heard that the old expression, um, you can uh, walk the walk or talk the talk, but can you walk the walk? And, uh, and I got curious about that, like where that came from. And uh, then I started Googling and I saw several different things. There was like an, an, a news article in 1921 that uses a very similar expression. But even before that, even going back to the 16th century, uh, Shakespeare and, and Richard III uh, has a similar type of line, but it's not exactly the same. But anyway, then there's some, you know, people say, well, it came from here. And anytime you're trying to find out where a quote came from, just about every time, it's really hard. Uh, but it's old is the main point. And the idea of it is it's easy to say something. It's a lot harder to prove it. Like your words can, can you can paint a nice pretty picture with them sometimes, but that picture can be destroyed if your actions aren't consistent with it. And so for Christians saying, no, we're not like that, we're good folk. Well, okay, let's actually see what you do. If you're on a strophe, if your conduct, if your behavior isn't excellent, isn't rising above that of the world and the culture around you, then there's no reason for me to listen to your words. So if you're going to live in an environment where people won't trust your words, you better get your behavior right. And that's what he's going to say right here in verse 12. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. The logic is, is pretty clear. What he's saying is there are people slandering you as evildoers, but if they can see your conduct and good deeds, then they may just realize, hey, I've actually been wrong here, and maybe they're onto something, and maybe the God they're serving is actually making more out of them than has been made out of me. 
and has been made out. And they can actually come to be people who glorify God, not because of your words, but because of your actions. If you flip over to chapter 3 and verse 15, he's going to, uh, I think, summarize some of the points. These two verses, I think, are kind of like bookends in this, in this section right here about how to live uh, in a world that is foreign to Christianity. And um, back up to verse 14 of chapter 3, he says, But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed, and do not fear their intimidation, and don't be troubled. It's like if you're intimidated or troubled by uh, the world around you, don't be. Here's what you do instead, verse 15. But set apart or sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a, a, a defense, an, an apologia, an, an, an apology, but, but literally it's the idea of like a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you with gentleness and with reverence and keep a good conscience so that the thing in which they, you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior, that's our key word on a strophe again, behavior, conduct, in Christ, they'll be put to shame. Here's, here's what he's saying. Do a couple of things. One, don't give up when things get hard. If you're suffering, that's not reason to walk away. Number two, set aside Christ. Set him apart as the Lord of your life more so than anyone or anything else. You need to have that answer secure. I'm going to live for Christ now, no matter how hard things get, no matter who challenges me in it. And when people do challenge you in it, have an answer ready. Be able to tell people with love, with gentleness, with reverence, why it is that Christ has set apart as Lord. Why is it that you have chosen to live in this bizarre manner? Why is it that you have taken on this identity as a Christian in a world that does not do so? Be able to explain that and give an answer. And then confirm it, verse 16, with your good conscience and good behavior, your conduct. Make sure your conduct is excellent so that people who are trying to insult you who are trying to revile you or slander you, can't do it anymore. They could say, well, I'm not going to be a Christian, but they seem to be pretty good people. You know, they seem to be the type of people who are trustworthy, the type of people who you might want to hire, the type of people who, if they're living in your uh, neighborhood, you're going to have some good neighbors there. Like, that's the reputation you want Christianity to have, and it's not going to come because we keep telling people we'll have a good, <laughs> we're good folk, actually live it out. So in between these two verses where he calls Christians in the midst of a, of a non-Christian culture to live with excellent behavior, he's going to go through a couple of um, examples of what that might look like when you're surrounded by non-Christians. Basically, what if you have a, a government that is not Christian at all? What if you're a slave and your master is not a Christian? What if you're a wife and your husband is not a Christian. Like in your household, in your job, and in your government. He starts really large and he kind of zeroes in. How is it that you live in each of these environments as a Christian with those who might have zero respect or, or, um, or uh, zeal or anything like that for Christianity? Well, he's going to basically bring it down to two, two things. Uh, number one is going to be your behavior, your anastrophe, your conduct. In each of those settings, make sure that your behavior is something honorable, something that will show the goodness of God uh, to others. But the other one, and this is the one that's so surprising, this is the one that's counter-cultural, this is the one that, uh, that really takes the uniqueness of the story of Jesus and makes it our story. The other one is submission. 
submit to a non-Christian government, submit to a non-Christian ruler, submit to a non-Christian husband or family member. Like, and you might think, well, wait a minute. If we're trying to influence people for Christ, they should be submitting to us. That way we could, like, we could, we could overpower them with the gospel or something. But no, he's actually going to say submission even to non-Christians is one of the best ways you can actually change the heart of a non-Christian. It's one of the ways that you can make the biggest influence. And he's going to center the whole discussion based on the example of Jesus. Right in the middle of this list, he's going to tell us to look at the cross and look at how Jesus changed the world having excellent behavior and through submission. And that becomes our call to follow. We're talking about our, our call. He's going to say in chapter 2 and verse 21, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example that you should follow in his steps. So the obedient submission of Jesus on the cross becomes our call to follow. That's who we're called to be if we're Christians. And that does not always mean standing up to fight for everything that we want. Sometimes it means excellent behavior, godly conduct, and submission. When it comes to the governing officials, if you look at chapter 2 and verse uh, 15, is it right in the middle of him talking about how to respond to the government. He says, For such is the will of God, that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. That, that's the same idea we've been seeing. By doing the right thing, you can remove any, anything they have to say about you. You know, the government, the, it, when Nero wanted to persecute the church, by the way, Christianity wasn't illegal, uh, like in the Roman government at that time. Uh, we, we often, you know, want to read the New Testament documents as though Christianity was illegal. Uh, it wasn't really. What was illegal was arson. And what Nero said was, these Christians have burned down Rome. And so he started a pretty intense persecution there in Rome. But Rome didn't care that much who you worshipped. Uh, what starts happening is in, in like, in different locales and in different uh, cultures, people would notice Christians not worshiping the gods. They would notice uh, Christians not worshiping the emperor as that started. And that's when things started to, you know, the, the persecution starts to heat up. But generally it was pretty sporadic and it was in certain locations and it got really intense in Rome in the late 60s. Uh, it ended up leading to, uh, to the death of a lot of the, the founders uh, or the, 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 uh, the earliest Christians and the apostles and prophets. But what you see right here is through those periods of persecution, your example becomes the faithful, submissive Lord of the universe. Uh, your example becomes Jesus. And in chapter 2 and verse 15, it says one of the things that your good conduct could actually do in the midst of that environment is silence those who are trying to revile, slander, or say uh, cruel and untrue things about you. Truth matters. And show people the truth of God so that they can't continue to spread falsehood about you. But if what they're saying is true, then you're not helping yourself. But what I mean is, if we actually are judgmental and hateful people, if we actually are arrogant and self-righteous people, if we actually are people who behave the way that the world says we do, then we're not going to silence anyone. We're just going to give them more and more ammunition to keep saying those things, and we're going to continue to harm the witness of Christ. We need to be careful that our behavior 
is contradicting the accusation rather than confirming it. Uh, but then when you look at uh, chapter 3 in verse 1, uh, this is uh, when, he, when he zeroes from government, he goes to the home in chapter 3 in verse 1, and he'll say, uh, talking to wives, he'll call for submission. Um, to be submissive to your own husbands, so that if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe the chaste and respectful behavior. So here's a fascinating idea. If you have a, a Christian woman and she's married to a husband who's a pagan or is not a believer, not a Christian, one of the best things that she can do isn't to keep telling him, you need to become a Christian, you need to become a Christian. It's to have submissive, obedient behavior, like, like good behavior. Uh, that word anastrophe, it appears in chapter 3 and verse 1 when it says, he may be won without a word by the behavior, the conduct of your wife as he observes your chaste and respectful behavior. What you do matters. And it, it, this is not just a call to wives. This is a call to, like, as we've been seeing, whether you're talking about everyone to the government or whether you're talking about in uh, your workplace or whether you're talking about in your home, this is the model of Jesus on the cross. And this is how Jesus ended up changing the world. And this is how we're called to change the world. Behavior and submission. Uh, then he, he'll actually go on uh, in chapter 3 and verse 8 and summarize to everyone, no matter who you are or where you are or who you're dealing with, he'll say, to sum up, all of you, be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but rather giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Like, when you're insulted, do not respond to that with an insult. When, when you, people have said or done evil to you, don't respond by returning that to them. Rather, show them the goodness of God. That's when you have the opportunity to show the behavior that Christ is calling us to have. When you look back into uh, chapter 2 and verse 18, this is right in the middle of it. He, he begins to talk about, uh, about slaves. And this is kind of an uncomfortable section because of, of like the history of slavery in this country. And some of his advice is not the advice that we would think to give in a situation. I do think it's helpful to know historically slavery that he's dealing with is of a much different nature than uh, the slavery that we had in this country. Um, there are a couple of things I think that are helpful because these types of passages pop up throughout the New Testament, uh, throughout the Bible. And there's a few things that I think are helpful to kind of adopt as our mindset as we read them. One of them is to recognize that these are not written by those on the top of society to those on the bottom of society. What I mean is Christianity and the earliest Christian documents are often resistance literature. They're often literature written by those on the bottom, uh, and they're not necessarily written to governors, and they're not written by governors. They're written on the ground from people at the bottom of society to other people on the bottom of society. So this, set might, this advice might sound different if he were writing to the emperor or writing to the governor or writing to someone with some political power. He's writing to people who don't have any political power as someone without political power and giving advice in that setting. The God that we read about in the Bible is a God whose grand narrative is about setting people free from slavery. Like going back to the Exodus story itself, God looked with compassion on the slaves and brought about liberation and freedom. That's the God that we serve, and that's the God that is consistent throughout the Bible. And so even in these stories, 
I think in, in these passages, I think you're getting helpful advice for how to overcome and to uh, slavery and and be liberated from it. Um, when you look at, uh, for example, verse 18, he's going to center it on the same ideas of submission and obedience that he's been mentioning in all of these uh, other examples. He says, servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. And so what he calls for slaves to do is not rise up and revolt and kill your master. Don't use violence. That's one of the most difficult things that I think early Christians grappled with is if you are in a non-Christian world and you're part of a non-violent movement, how do you bring about change in that world? Uh, it's not easy to do, and it, it certainly takes creativity, and it certainly takes a lot of willingness to suffer yourself, to, to take within yourself the pain that this world uh, has, and not to turn it back into vengeance, but to turn it into the blessing of God. And, and that, that's, that's what he actually says. You were called for this purpose, that you may inherit a blessing. So when it, he's talking about this, I think he's talking about ways of showing the goodness of God in Christ in a bad situation. You don't do that by fighting. You do that by submission and obedience. You do that by uh, willingly taking on the difficulty and trusting in God to overcome. But also, as I mentioned, there are some differences between the way we tend to think about slavery and the way uh, that slavery worked in the, the Greco-Roman world in the first century. One of those differences is that slavery was usually temporary, and one of the best ways to get your freedom was not by fighting against your master and being disobedient, but actually by, by it's kind of like if you're a prisoner, uh, you know, if you act well, you're likely to get some more privileges and some more benefits and actually probably more likely get released early. That same type of thing would work. And so this is advice that if taken seriously would actually probably help a slave get freedom uh, as well. But all of that, what he's saying is even in that difficult circumstance, Trust God, be faithful, don't turn to violence as an easy option, but change the world in a different way. And after looking at all of these examples, right at the heart of it is his picture of Jesus on the cross. And we'll close by looking at this. Chapter 2 and verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example for you to follow in his steps. And here's Christ's submission and good behavior, fully uh, uh, detailed in verse 22 and following, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, you were healed. You were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Jesus, though he certainly did not have to, and he certainly could have done something about it, he could have uh, used violent resistance and tried to change the world that way, but we've seen how that goes. Every country that's ever existed that's how they've tried to change the world. And we end up just repeating the cycle over and over and over again with each new generation. Jesus tries something different here. 
Jesus, instead of returning insult for insult, violence for violence, uh, hatred for hatred, he ends up submitting. He ends up being obedient. He ends up suffering. But through his suffering, he has changed the world. And that's what we're called into. We're called to follow in that example. And several things might happen. Number one, you might suffer. Now, no one wants that. I don't want that for you. You don't want that for yourself, but it's the reality of being called to be a Christian. Number two, you may very well end up making an impact in the life of someone who otherwise would not have ever seen the grace of God. Through Jesus's death on the cross, we become recipients of his grace. That's a wonderful thing. But through his death on the cross, we also become agents of his grace to the world around us. One of the best ways to take the cross to other people is by carrying it ourselves. And that's what Jesus actually calls us to do, uh, to carry our crosses. We, the cross is not only the picture of our salvation, it's also the picture of our ethics. It's the picture of our love. It's the picture of our dealing with others. It's the picture of how we endure suffering. It's the picture of how we show the love of God to a world that doesn't know it. And so the cross becomes our hope. It becomes our example. It becomes our means of grace. And it also becomes our challenge to extend grace. And as we bring the lesson to a close, remember those ideas and extend grace to the world around you. If you're insulted, respond with grace rather than insult. If you're suffering, show the grace of God rather than hatred. Try to, be, try to live up to the calling that you have so that people can actually see Christ. They can see his love. They can see his life. They can see his death, and they can see his hope in you. Uh, and if there's anyone here who wants to become a Christian this morning, it's not always easy, but it's well worth it because God is watching, and he knows when you suffer, and he cares when you suffer, and he doesn't forget when you suffer and God will reward righteously. If there's anyone here who wants to become a Christian, you can talk to one of our elders in the library in the back, or you can come sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.